One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 177, questions 6. It's that time again to tackle as many listener questions as I can. There are so many that the next episode will be questions 7, and there's a backer rewards episode just to deal with queries about the Empire's Jewish communities. Today I'm going to handle domestic matters, and next time we deal with more imperial questions. And to make sure all of you in the back are paying attention, I will play this sound effect to signal the end of an answer. Let's go. Listener JM asks about what houses look like. I assume they've long stopped looking like classical Roman villas, I'm especially interested in the homes of the wealthy of Constantinople. Did they have large homes in the city, or did they have estates along the Bosphorus? And did the wider empire have one universal architectural style at this time period, or were there significant regional variations? I talked a little about this in episode 169, when we were in Constantinople. And do check out the pictures on the website uh, for that episode in particular. The elites did indeed keep a home in the capital. It was a necessity in order to be around the court during important state occasions. And indeed, many of them also had a seaside getaway on the Bosphorus or the Sea of Marmara, both of which were in addition to land they might hold further afield from which they drew rent. The archaeological record is poor for Byzantine houses, but those we do know of tended to have courtyards in the centre of the building with rooms surrounding it on the ground floor and rooms overlooking it from the gallery above. The very wealthy could afford to maintain small baths or even a private chapel in the city and would certainly have had rooms for animals and servants. The courtyard as a central feature was also present in the classical Roman villa, and now, though, it would be present without the old, ornate, peristyle design. A courtyard was both pleasing on the eye and practical in a Mediterranean climate where much communal activity could take place outside. We know much less about the mansions along the seashores, though again check out episode 169's pictures for clues, out in the provinces, there was variation depending on the needs of the people and the changing landscape. 
The few surviving manor houses of Anatolia are designed more like a modern home in the shape of a block with two stories, uh, which was usually enough to give the squire a good view of the surrounding countryside. I've put up photos on this episode's page of one of the ruins that still stands in western Turkey and a reconstruction to go with it. Being in the countryside with abundant outdoor space, there was less need for a courtyard. Elsewhere, houses were built to suit the needs of each community. In the growing cities of Greece, very little central planning seems to have taken place. Workshops and houses were thrown together on narrow streets, while in Pergamon, houses were built up the side of the hill, the city's ancient acropolis, so as to be easier to defend. This led to a series of box-like dwellings to make maximum use of the space. In eastern Anatolia, meanwhile, some hilltop settlements constructed houses in a circle with small entryways between each dwelling. The idea was that if an Arab raid came, the narrow opening would mean only one man could attack at a time, allowing the defenders a better chance of cutting them down. A few of the Anatolian magnates seem to have had large homes with multiple buildings, uh, halls, churches of their own, and bathhouses, along with defensive towers, just in case. Very little common housing has survived, but in the cities this would have meant crowded tenements, and in the country this would mean homes made of wood or unbaked bricks with timber or thatched roofs. The living areas would centre on an open hearth, and there might be no flooring in some rooms. I'm sure there was a common approach to construction in each region. Churches of the period certainly have lots of similarities. Check out episode 174 for pictures of those. But as far as I know, no common style of home flourished across the empire like the old Roman villa. Listener PB asks, what was the extent of slavery? Did slaves make up one-fifth of the population, one-tenth, one-hundredth? This is one of those questions that we just can't answer. As we discussed in a recent Backer Rewards episode, estimates for the population of the empire vary between scholars, sometimes by significant margins. Slave numbers are an even hazier area. Part of the problem is the terminology used in our sources. Terms like servants or members of the household are used when referring to domestic support, which deny us concrete evidence of how many slaves a Byzantine family might be expected to own. However, a lot of evidence points to slavery being a widespread phenomenon. We know that the slave trade was active throughout our period, we know that the Venetians and others grew rich from selling them at Constantinople. We know that slaves worked in the palace and the imperial workshops. We will know that when Alexius Komnenos attempts to change the laws regarding slavery, he will be met with strong objections. And we know that the price of slaves remained consistent for many centuries, suggesting a regular system of supply and demand. Also, in one saint's life, it said that a man was reduced to extreme poverty, and in that state he only possessed one slave and one servant, although for context he had 
before that been a very wealthy landowner. We can be safe in assuming that the kind of plantation slavery that led to Spartacus's uprising was long gone, but there may well have been occasions when slaves were still used in large numbers. Recently I talked about how mulberry bushes had been planted across the empire to provide material for the silk industry, while collecting silkworm cocoons was labour-intensive and required careful coordination. It might well be, therefore, that slaves were employed in large numbers across the silk industry, given the potential profits involved. It seems that culturally, slave-owning was seen as a natural part of life, but that Christians were expected to free most of their slaves before their death. A standard ceremony of manumission was offered by the church, the wording of which implies that the owner is nearing the end. And the few wills which survive from this period confirm this practice. The freeing of slaves seems to have been part of a great giveaway of worldly goods which people hoped would ease their path into the next life. The will of Evstathios Boilus, a magnate who lived in Tau, tells us that he cultivated a huge amount of land around his estates, and as he did, he settled his freed slaves on them. They would pay rent to him, of course, but he clearly saw it as his duty to give them a farm of their own after a certain period of service. He seems to have been highly involved in the affairs of his dependents. He talks of being present at and arranging the marriages of his slaves and freedmen, of building a church for them and making sure that some of their children were educated by the church so that they could one day run it, and we have no idea whether these decisions were made with the approval of the slaves themselves. It's entirely possible they were fully consulted and happy, but we don't know. Another tiny glimpse into this world comes from one of the very few sources written in the Slavonic language which survived from this period. In the margins of a gospel, we find a note recording the sale of a baby to the church. We assume that the mother couldn't provide for herself or the child. The language used describes the baby as a gift from the mother to the church, but in exchange she was given a field to work along with food and clothes. Despite the objection of a few ecclesiastics over the centuries, the church's endorsement of slavery ensured its perpetuation. The fields which supported monasteries and the estates of bishops were often worked by slaves. Listener E.T. asks about citizenship. Now, listener J.S., to give him credit, asked about this a long time ago, but it's only now I feel in a position to answer it. When listener J.S. asked, it was simply about foreigners in general coming to Byzantium and how they might acquire Roman citizenship. Listener E.T. now asks the same question in the context of all the newly conquered lands. And it feels like a vital question, after all the struggles that were fought over it back in the days of the Republic. But sadly, I can't find much information on citizenship at all. Several handbooks of Byzantine studies don't even have a reference for it in their index. As you know, the Emperor Caracalla 
granted all free inhabitants of the empire their citizenship back in 212 AD. Practically, this seems to have led to the end of this distinction as a political issue in Byzantium. In other words, if you spoke Greek and had an address, then you pretty much were a Roman citizen. I have yet to find any scholars saying otherwise. As far as the government was concerned, taxes could be collected and justice administered on anyone who met these criteria. And because there were no elections anymore, there was no fear that a foreigner would gain political power. If you wanted to climb the greasy pole, then you had to speak Greek and profess orthodoxy and make a lot of Roman friends, all of which guaranteed assimilation. For individual foreigners entering the empire, there was a danger that you would be treated more harshly because of your outsider status. But once this person acquired an address, a Roman spouse, an employer, neighbours, and so on, then they had the necessary advocates to help them in a crisis. We talked recently about Syrian silk merchants who were definitely treated like foreigners and asked to live and work in specific quarters in Constantinople. But it was accepted that if they stayed in the city for 10 years, then they would acquire the same rights as native silk merchants, essentially granting them citizenship on the assumption that after 10 years of residence, they were naturalized enough to get by. For groups of foreigners who migrated into the empire, it seems that a grace period was usually allowed, a time when they wouldn't be taxed and when the leaders of their group could administer justice. Over time, though, when these migrants came into conflict with local Romans, then legal cases would be heard under Roman rules by Roman judges. We assume that by then both parties would be treated as citizens. Foreign soldiers would be under military authority while they were serving, so any dispute with a civilian would be settled by their commanding officer, and this cover would only be broken when they left their post, at which point they would either settle in the empire, becoming a citizen, or leave. For the newly conquered provinces, the answer is simple. The people there ran their own justice systems and negotiated the tax take with the Roman governor. So technically, these people were not Roman citizens, despite being within the military borders of the empire. If they wanted to acquire property in the older themes or move there, then they would come under the jurisdiction of Roman authority. So, Muslims, Jews, and Armenians who fell into dispute with their peers could have their case heard by their own judges under their own rules. As far as I know, no documentation was necessary to prove your citizenship. It was more important to have papers proving your ownership or occupation of land. The absence of such documents led to many a legal case. Listener SK asked if such a document would be needed when crossing borders. The answer to that is no, but as we discussed back in episode 114, you certainly would need some documents to say who you were when travelling in most places. Western visitors to the Caliphate were required to go to the governor and pay for a passport which would allow them to pass unmolested along the roads to Jerusalem. 
On a similar topic, listener PB asks about Muslim prisoners of war. How did they integrate into the Christian Roman nation? Let's take a theoretical example. Say 500 Muslim men were taken prisoner, 30 officers with 100 attendants, and the rest were regular soldiers. They would be taken to the nearest harbour to be put on a ship to Constantinople. It was too dangerous to house them in the provinces. At this point, it's possible that some of them would be sold into slavery by the Roman officer who captured them. Some may even have been taken on foot by the soldiers in that unit as part of the division of the loot. This all depends on the circumstances of the day and whether a prisoner exchange was at all likely in the near future. Only the common soldiers would receive this fate, though. Officers would be identified and be given better care, as might their attendants. So let's say 250 men are now left and put on various ships heading for Constantinople. Once there, they would be led to the capital's prisons, where a mosque was set aside for their use. With no prisoner exchange on the horizon, 150 of these men would be put to work in the imperial warehouses. There they would work on weapons or silks or repairing boats. There's a warning from one Arab author not to reveal your profession to the Byzantines or they'll put you to work immediately. The officers would be kept in prison but might also be put to work. Again, depends on the regime in charge. They might be treated kindly and asked to join in the military education of young Byzantines, showing off their equestrian skills. They might be asked for diplomatic or linguistic help. Details are scarce, but something it's worth bearing in mind is that elites tended to treat fellow elites well, partly out of self-preservation, but partly because there was a sense that these men might be heretics but at least they're gentlemen. They had good manners, they were clean, they held themselves like elite men. This cultural snobbery could mean a great deal for someone in captivity. If a Muslim officer wanted to, he could then learn Greek and convert to Christianity. If no prisoner exchange was coming, then it might be his best bet for a fulfilling life. He might be trusted to work in administration, and because he was an educated man, he was qualified to do so. Such men, we can imagine, would attract plenty of attention and gossip, a minor celebrity. The government and church alike loved a convert. It was such a great advert for their efforts. Though, as usual, I should stress that this is a theoretical example and the story of very few over the centuries. Listener WB asks about compaternity, or becoming a godparent at baptism. As is familiar today, many Byzantines would choose godparents who were supposed to look after a child's spiritual well-being as they grew up. Depending on the situation, the godparents might also be genuinely expected to step in if the child's parents died young. Obviously, the use of this institution varied from family to family, and amongst the elites it might be used to forge family connections or business relationships. Listener WB was particularly interested in the use of this at the very top, 
where the emperor would become godfather to another head of state. We saw this under Justinian, with several rulers who accepted baptism, and again recently with the conversion of Boris of Bulgaria and Vladimir of the Rus. In both cases, the emperor acted as godfather to the converting ruler. Naturally, the Byzantines hoped that this would lead to stronger relations and an element of control over their spiritual son, but in practice, it rarely did. Another aspect of this tradition which briefly intruded on the narrative was that godparents were considered by the church to be a member of the family, and therefore it was illegal for godparents to contract marital relations with members of their spiritual family. This caused a problem when Nicephorus Phocas married Theophano, because as the empire's senior general, he'd been asked to stand as godfather to Basil II, or Constantine VIII, or possibly both, we're not sure. Either way, it meant he was not supposed to marry their mother, but the patriarch looked the other way on the matter. Listener SK asks, were Roman citizens able to take vacations, or was it confined to the upper classes? What were popular destinations? The idea of leaving one's home for, say, a week's holiday is quite a modern one. Obviously, in Byzantine times, travel was so difficult that to leave home and take a trip was arduous, time-consuming, expensive, and potentially dangerous. Leaving one's home empty was an invitation to thieves, and most jobs in an urban setting would be filled by someone else if you were gone too long. However, the idea of a holiday was familiar to the Byzantines, generally meaning a day off from work to celebrate a festival or religious event. The wealthy could indeed enjoy actual vacations, leaving the city behind to go and stay in one of their second or third homes, The shores of the Sea of Marmara were dotted by the houses of the wealthy, allowing Constantinople's elite a summer retreat not too far from the capital. Though it was hardly a vacation, annual fairs did allow many people the chance to stretch their legs and see other places. The fairs were usually held outside a major town or city, and people from the surrounding countryside would come to buy and sell, and often celebrate a particular saint's day. There they might enjoy entertainments and feasts. Those with some means could also contemplate pilgrimage to a saint's tomb or other holy site that might function like a vacation, though, as I say, travel was not easy. Various emperors are recorded as going on recreational journeys. They would often retreat to a suburban palace during the summer, where forested areas were maintained to allow them to go hunting. But other trips were taken for religious purposes or for health reasons. Constantine VII visited the monks on Mount Olympus in Bithynia just before his death, while Irene plotted her own son's downfall while visiting hot springs in the Obsycion. Listener T asks, how did Romans of this century view the Greeks and Romans of antiquity? Did Christianity wipe out most reflections, or did people consider what BC philosophers, poets, and politicians had said? Hopefully this question has been answered by some of the episodes 
in this end-of-the-century series. We saw that with the statues of Constantinople, popular memories of the distant past were by now thoroughly distorted, and in many cases biblical figures were far better known than Roman ones. But amongst the elite, the ancient Greeks were very much alive and well. The true polymaths might also read Latin, but most men of the administration knew their Homer and Thucydides, and perhaps some Plato. Because elite culture was obsessed with reproducing the classical Greek language, many Byzantine readers were far more familiar with the BC past than they were with the history of the AD Roman Empire. Procopius, for example, when he travelled through Africa, was confident making reference to Homeric incidents said to have taken place there, whereas when he mentions the, quotes, ancient emperor Septimius Severus also being from that place, you get the sense he's on far less familiar ground. Listener GB has a good one. Do we know of any common Byzantine expressions that people used in daily conversation? It's hard to find examples of actual chatter, but we do occasionally see expressions repeat themselves across multiple sources. For example, in several usurpations, centuries apart, the crowds shout the same phrases. One is simply unworthy, which was a reversal of worthy, which was chanted during the acclamations of a new Vasilevs. Shouting unworthy was a straight-to-the-point political slogan indicating the emperor needed to be overthrown. More colourfully, the crowds also chanted, dig up his bones, suggestive of denying him even honourable burial in addition to removing him from the throne. This was chanted at Justinian II as an example. Around 1200, another cynical expression was directed at the church, who some felt were not adequately fulfilling their duties. The phrase was, a large church and little grace. This was popular at the capital, where of course the largest church of all stood. Occasionally we get reports of popular poems or songs, usually mocking officials, but that were well known enough to be recorded by the histories. And of course, various nicknames for emperors stuck and gained wide acceptance. Michael the Drunkard, of course, Leo the Wise, and so on. Listener KT asks, Is there any aspect of Byzantine history or society which you feel like you never fully got? Not something where the sources are lacking, but something that you've never read a convincing explanation for. I love this question, and sadly I don't have a good answer. There must be a thousand things that I've thought of while doing the show that I now can't remember, and I suppose most of them would have had something to do with a lack of sources. One thing I'd be very interested to know is how many of the common people actually went to church. One scholar said in passing that he didn't think anyone in the countryside did, but he didn't back that up with any evidence. We tend to think of people in medieval times as being very religious, but there's a big difference between religion being your source of information and your frame of reference for how the world works and actually going to church and observing feasts and fasts and everything else. Similarly, how religious was life in a monastery 
which might sound like a silly question, but many monasteries seem to have been set up to protect assets or to function like retirement homes. And I just wonder whether some men lived exactly the same life they did before, but in a different outfit, or if men really did dream of leaving the secular world behind to devote themselves to a life of prayer. Finally, listener TG asks, what is your favourite depiction of Byzantium in historical fiction, and do you think the image of the empire has improved in recent years? I put this question to the listeners, who responded with a huge list of books, but very few films or TV shows, at least in English. You can find those threads on Facebook and Twitter. I'm afraid the podcast leaves me little time to read for fun, so beyond those books that have featured on the show, I haven't read any fictional settings of Byzantium. And though I understand that uh, Byzantine characters recently appeared on the TV show Vikings, the only depiction I remember seeing was the 2009 film Agora. It showcased the life of Hypatia of Alexandria, who I covered on a recent Byzantine story. But those events were before the years covered by the podcast. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that Game of Thrones has opened the door to more stories being set in a medieval context, and there are certainly aspects of it which are very true of Byzantium. But I'm afraid I don't have a good answer, and I don't think the image of the Empire has improved uh, recently, not in a popular sense. Uh, In the interview with Peter Adamson, he joked that if I asked people on the street to name a Byzantine emperor, I would get little in the way of response. And I would go one further and say that most of my friends and family would struggle, despite this being my sixth year working on the show. Most people I meet seem to have very limited knowledge of history, and so it's not a surprise that Byzantium is a closed book to them. I think a big-budget Hollywood movie could change this a bit, but with so many properties being extended or remade, I don't see money being spent on an unknown empire anytime soon. In the new year, I will be doing my bit uh, by producing three fictional episodes set in the midst of the Arab raids as part of the rewards for Kickstarter backers. So there's that. That's all the questions for today. Coming next is questions episode seven where we will discuss the varangians provincial administration diplomacy family mottos and the ever popular top five best and worst emperors Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
my guy. You're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.